In the streets of Laredo I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a poor cowboy Wrapped up in white linen All wrapped in white linen As cold as the clay Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, so, as we're finishing up this this read through of Lovecraft's work, we're, we're I'm I'm completing it with a, a look at the HP Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard uh, letters, probably because I had those books and I've been um, thinking about them a lot lately. As a as I think they're just such a nice uh, thematically tying to a lot of what I'm interested in. In, in terms of, of Lovecraft's work, um, especially things of class and civilization and history and, and if, if views of history and things like that, as, as you might have picked up on, I'm, I am trying to put together a manuscript that's not really just about race. I don't want it to just be reducible to that, but uh, class, uh, you know, views of history and things like that uh, are all kind of parts of it. Um, if you if you can track down my article, the Innsmouth Look, or in praise of the Innsmouth Look, that's what it's called. I wrote it several years ago, and it's kind of been sitting in my mind. Uh, it, even when I wrote it, I knew that wow, this could be a book. This could be something really stretched out. Maybe not two hundred thousand words, but uh, you know, a hundred thousand words or so. And I have at least that much written. It's just a matter of kind of putting it together in a way that's satisfying to me. Um, and I think I'll work on that this winter, um, you know, not too, not, not long after you'll be hearing this. I'll, I'll start trying to put that together. Um, so a lot of what I'm doing with these letters is just forcing myself to do read them again and, and think about them and maybe make some connections. So it, it, this might be for more for my benefit than for yours, but but anyways, um, in today's episode, I'm going to look specifically at the letters from September uh, 1931 to June 32. So, um, uh, you know, I just broke these up into 100 page chunks uh, to, to look at, you know, any, some of these letters could be you could do a whole one two hour episode. I mean, there's a whole podcast that does that already. So um, I'm just going to kind of highlight the themes. Now, my thoughts on these letters themselves is actually I, I find their conversation. And I, I think I noticed this the first time and I noticed it again reading it the, this time. So I think this is true is that their conversation became a little bit less dynamic. Like it starts out really hot and exciting and they're really playing with some big ideas. And then at this point, there's a lot of just, oh, I really found what you said about this interesting. Here's a little bit more of what I think on it. And then there was, it was a lot of back and forth. The letters are a little bit shorter. There's uh, quite a few of them, but they, they tend not to, they don't seem to be pushing the conversation in new directions. Like throughout, like the things we've been talking about, like civilization, folklore, uh, race, um, uh, things like that. Uh, oh, the, the American West and the frontier, American regionalism, the, what's the other thing? Oh, like, uh, like crime, yeah, those are things they talk about them a lot in the letters in this section, but they have been talking about those things, right? And you don't see either one's positions really evolve that much. You know, I'm not sure that's something to really look for in these letters anyways. I, I think they both have their own worldview and it's all about, you know, teaching each other about who they are. Um, 
not really about necessarily convincing them. We'll, we'll get heated later on. I think, as we'll see in future episodes, the, the debate does get heated from time to time. But this is just much more polite back and forth. Um, and maybe, you know, Lovecraft's traveling during this period is when he takes a trip to the south. Um, I, I just find the whole conversation kind of is in a nadir here in this, this section. Now, there is an interesting introduction. They do bring up the, like the Massey case, the, 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 this rape trial in Hawaii. Uh, that involved race and gender politics, and people have written, I'm sure, whole books about it. It's certainly been something historians have explored, and they, you know, it was big in the news at the time. Um, and I'll, I'll, when we get to it, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you a little bit more in case you don't know about it. I think I, it's a, it came up earlier in the podcast at some point, or maybe in my visits to the SFF audio podcast. We talked about it. I remember talking about the Massey affair a little bit. Um, but anyways, it comes up here. That's kind of a new thing. Um, they talk a little bit more about Japan and the Orient and like the place of America in the world, I guess, which is interesting. But by and large, I think we're, we're kind of in the same ground we have been. Anyways, where I um, will start, I suppose, is uh, September 12th, 1931, uh, a letter by, by Lovecraft. Where he starts out talking about uh, racial memory, as as we picked up last time, Howard, you know, very kind of recklessly said something like, "Maybe racial memory is a real thing," and and that's why I'm kind of this affinity for because we're really talking about they're talking about how they all have their affinities. Lovecraft's kind of a, has an affinity towards Rome, and and Howard's is more towards like, you know, maybe Mesopotamia or, or Celtic things and. And he kind of says, well, maybe it's racial memory. And, and, and Lovecraft says, no, that's nonsense. It doesn't exist. You know, it's an important thing when you think about his racial theories is there are some ra racist, racist and racial ideas, racialist ideas out there that Lovecraft didn't absorb, right? We often talk about you know, Lovecraft just absorbing his racial ideas from the context, but he didn't absorb all of them. So he's not totally impressionable to his context and culture. He's filtering and he thinks about these things. So the racist ideas he has, he's thought about, you know, and I, I think that's I'm saying this so we don't forgive Lovecraft so easily. I, I don't like people just reducing it to, oh, he was swimming in a racist society or racist like. And so he's a racist. Well, that's he doesn't absorb all the ideas, one of which was racial memory. Maybe it's not a mainstream idea, but it's something that Howard seemed to have played with. And then, anyways, Lovecraft responded back like that's a really dumb thing. And here, Howard, kind of like a younger, you know, like a younger protege, says, "Oh, I maybe you know I didn't really mean it that way," um, or something like that. And and here you see Lovecraft then sort of saying, "Well, maybe there's something to this idea in terms of like how cultures are formed, right?" Um, he says, "What?" Uh, Concerning hereditary in general, it's curious how a dark strain will purposely crop out a blonde stock while blonde strain is completely lost among dark stock. That's an idea we've seen before expressed in these letters. It proves that the dark type is by far the more basic and normal in the species than that Nordic is a product of exceptional and tenuous specialization whose results are insecurely lodged in the race, always ready to be overthrown by any influence favoring the original arrangement. Um, so, and then he says like, you know about other racial features but he kind of moves the conversation back to actual physical features which can be um, you know inherited inherited right 
they get back to kind of the Central Asia thesis of the human origins too, or at least Lovecraft does, which is something they kind of started out talking about a little bit. Uh, this was the popular idea at the time, was Central Asiatic thesis. It wasn't um, like the out of Africa thesis wasn't really established so pretty recently till like the 70s, right? Till the 60s and 70s when you had those like more modern archeological digs in, in anthropological digs in Africa. Um, so, um, so that comes up again here as well. And this is all kind of tying into their overall conversations about like how cultures move and, and how people move around and how that impacts cultures. And we've already kind of established their, their fundamental difference of opinions uh, about these. Now he gets a little bit into, uh, the, the economy and the depression and things like this. And, and, and Lovecraft says like, maybe this will move us away from a mechanistic kind of mechanical culture and machine culture that he's so fearful of. Maybe we'll get to like self-sufficiency and things like that. Although his hope is kind of regional. And this is a lot of this is kind of him responding to what Howard's saying about East Texas or Eastern Texas and, and saying, well, maybe, maybe there's something special about that culture that can be a holdout and maybe the depression can, can fulfill that. He seems generally kind of interested in what maybe the South, the Southwest has to offer. He kind of makes this point uh, in terms of like even nationalism and, and national unity in the United States, um, tying to sort of industrial society. Where is it? Um, Preservation of local heritage must be a cultural affair, and I'm glad to see the rise of new regional consciousness to offset the opposite political trend. Both Vermont and the Southwest seem to be making efforts to confirm a local culture, which outlasts the political isolation of the respective regions. Meanwhile, though, the individual indubitably suffers and is the brain-wracking problem to try to get him back, his lost status amidst the growing and apparent unavoidable control of government by large-scale industry. Most attacks on the present system of government industry aim only at conditions which would make it even worse for the individual, as in Bolshevik Russia, where the individual mind is utterly and ruthlessly crushed into the pre preconceived unnatural mold of so-called proletarian ideology." Quote. Um, so what's at war here are folkways versus machine culture, right? And, and the question I guess he, he has is, can, can Texas be a folkway that kind of can hold out a little bit more? Or is it just inevitable that all this, that's why they're talking about American diversity so much, or at least how they are connecting their conversation about American diversity and, and folkways and all that to their both of their concerns about, about kind of a mechanical, mechanized culture emerging. Um, so, a little bit more here again i don't want to repeat myself if you're listening along i which i'm doing it a lot i know but uh i'm gonna to try to minimize it this episode anyways uh you know we get a more on like him liking the roman era um more on crime their their conversation on crime is just fucking hilarious to be honest you know i mentioned last time where you had that thing about how the italians are natural stabbers but the capone kind of innovated and brought in the machine gun a lot of their conversation about crime is, is has to be almost tongue in cheek in a, in a way. Um, they're both kind of voyeuristically observing uh, the emerging criminal cultures. For for Lovecraft, it's more like the mafia and, and that kind of thing. For Howard, it's more like banditry, and so his is more romanticized, I think, than than Lovecraft's. For Lovecraft is associating crime here with immigration and and organized crime in particular. 
Um, you know, even says at this point, the Italians are intelligently antisocial. Your Mexicans must be quite a problem, perhaps like our Portuguese. Through their ancient occupancy of land, doubtless made them less unnatural and repulsive. End quote. So it's all, it's some of his more racist commentary in these letters, actually, is reference to, the, you know, when he's talking about crime. But, you know, the Italians being antisocial, it doesn't even make sense in terms of what we understand about Italian criminality in this part of American history, right? They're, it's because they were so social, right, that they created institutions to, you know, to provide for jobs and to provide kind of social welfare systems, right? Um, if you read, uh, what's the guy's name? I'm, I've been away from my book so long I forgot. Palmer, Palmer's book, uh, Cultures of Darkness. That book talks a lot about, you know, how criminal organizations were sometimes separate cultures, right? Sometimes anti-capitalist, sometimes pro-fascist, sometimes having weird ideas or whatever, but they were alternative cultures that, that emerged and therefore they're part of society and they're social. social. I, I think for Lovecraft, it's just that they're not, they're not assimilated into America. And I don't know why he doesn't praise it, to be honest. It's something that bothers me about some of these letters. I guess I can kind of work it out intellectually in my head, but He's whining about this emerging uni uniform culture coming, right? That's going to destroy all these folkways. And he has a folkway right there in New York City or other or Boston, wherever he's look he's thinking about when he's talking, making these comments. And he just has blinkered again by saying, oh, that, that, that's just antisocial behavior, just criminality. When it actually was a folkway. Anyways. That's just some of the stuff in this this letter to to Howard. Um, so I'm going to skip one here, which is another Lovecraft uh, letter to Howard, which is just about like weird fiction stuff, where to publish, sending articles back and forth, uh, stories. I think this is the Tallman story. Um, so let's jump to. Uh, um, well, I guess Howard has a couple of responses here. Um, First is October 31st. And it's a really short one. It's a one-page one where he thanks him for some articles. I think he read In the Vault at this point, or, or Lovecraft sent him In the Vault. Um, but there's not much in this letter except him kind of babbling about his fear of pigs, which is a, kind of a funny conversation, but it doesn't seem really too, too relevant to anything we're talking about. His distrust of pigs from his childhood in South Texas. Maybe it's racial memory. <laughs> that... <laughs> Maybe something happened to his ancestors, you know, maybe his ancestors were, were Muslims or Jews or something. And, and that's why he has a, a kind of a, a fear of pigs. But anyways, not much in here. Um, then we have a letter to by Lovecraft that's missing on October 1. And there's a response. So this response, I think, was responding to a, not just this letter, not this letter from October 31st that we don't have intact. But the, also the previous letter, the one I was just talking, kind of opened up this podcast talking about. Because it is a very long one, too, and it deals with a lot of different themes. Um, so one thing he starts asking about is, like, who are Bohemians? He's, he's, I think Lovecraft must have talked about Bohemians in the previous letter. And he's like, well, who, what are even all Bohemians? Like, and that, that is something that, that in different contexts, have different meanings, right? If you're reading Willa Cather, Bohemians are an immigrant culture. If you're reading the Baroque cycle, the Bohemians are the, like, you know, actual Bohemians in Europe. If you're reading um, 
you know, I, well, I, I'm reading Main Street by Sinclair Lewis and Bohemians in are like a subculture, right? Like a kind of seen as the, the hippies of the time, right? So he's kind of having the same question. What do we even mean when we're talking Bohemians? Um, but, you know, a lot of this letter, he, he kind of is playing with different uh, stories from his childhood and East Texas folklore. It's a lot of fun stuff here. Uh, he goes here, the story of... Um, um, just a really, really local story. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure maybe someone's written about this because they were interested in Howard. But uh, the story of the Browns and their and this strange woman who had these like visions and stuff, and and kind of she was like a local shaman. And these are things that I think Howard was really, really fascinated by, and he, he kind of kept these packed away into his head. Um, but it's it's all kind of that wild frontier culture that's that seems to be of interest to both both writers here and she seems to have premonitions of like indian attacks and these indian attacks really did happen or something so you can take it with a grain of salt but um but howard certainly thought there was maybe something to it um what else does he talk about yeah here's what he says mrs brown was mrs crawford when i knew her because she, she he knew her when she was uh, older a strange woman and one whom the countryside looked on as a medium, a seer of visions and a communicator with the dead. After she married Crawford, he went forth one day to look for his horses, just as her former husband had. Again, it was the cold down. It was the cold, dear, sorry, it was a cold, drear day gloomed with gray hills. Crawford rode away while before, while before sundown, and she heard her, his horse hooves dwindle away on the hard, barren ground. The sun sank and the air grew cold and brittle. On the wings of a Halloween blue blizzard, night shut down and Crawford did not come. Mrs. Crawford retired a while and she lay in the darkness with the wild wind screaming around. Suddenly, a strange feeling came over her, which she recognized as a forerunner in a vision. And, um, and then... So anyways, he, he doesn't come back for like three days. Her husband, and she had these premonitions about something horrible happening to him. And then he had like... Uh, was started in a blizzard and he was like attacked by marauders and things and, and it seemed there was something real to the vision right. and and so he's really fascinated by this mrs brown mrs crawford figure and he goes on for several several pages talking about this even tying it in ways to to kind of a vision of race and struggle saying this is like a true immigrant or no, sorry a true frontier personality some maybe something we've lost um, uh, on the way uh, and then he also talks about like Indian folklore and Indian mythology and the, the, the mythology of the Indian wars, of course, a big part of, of the history in this region. So a lot of really nice stuff here. Again, I don't think it's all particularly fresh compared to the letters we've already read and looked at. But I think this one is, is kind of special because it does. It's, it's a very intimate um, reflection on the stories that he kind of grew up with, the stories of his childhood. So check it out if you want. Um, what else is in this letter? Uh, more on like nationalism and diversity. Kind of, he's kind of continuing that conversation, tying it also to uh, to crime, um, cultural difference, which is something that's I think a little bit, a little more irksome for Lovecraft to really talk about because he really wants to see cultures as coming kind of intact, and he's a little less comfortable about kind of cultures mixing and. Uh, changing over time dramatically because that's what he's fearful of i guess um and he and and howard sees all these kind of cultures becoming a little bit more of a soup in the, in the new world um and he kind of picks lovecraft's brain a little bit on, on certain folkways 
but really that's what they're getting into. These, these are conversations about folkways, um, which I think really does have a significant connection to both of their fictions in a way. So, um, yeah, diversity and nationalism, which of course I think was a problem at the time, right? The whole, uh, remember Lovecraft wrote an essay back when he was like really young about the hyphenated culture stuff about, uh, there was the, the nationalists who said we should embrace hyphenated identities because they're, we're all going to be part of this American experience. I think that was like Roosevelt was saying that and, 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 um, and Lovecraft was kind of criticizing that that perspective, right? It's still in the air right here in these conversations they're having. Um, but both agree there's something that's going to destroy those folkways eventually, um, you know, except for maybe some certain holdouts. He says, states' rights and individuality seem doomed, just as the individual seems doomed, except, of course, the individual who is rich and powerful enough to make his own laws and ride on top of the and of the cheat and hallucination of mass rule. Standardization is crushing the heart and soul and blood and guts out of humanity, and the eventual result will be either complete and unrelieved slavery or the destruction of civilization and return to barbarism. Once men sang of praises of ephemeral good gods carved out of ivory and, and wood. Now they sing equally senseless praises to equally ephemeral and vain gods of science and commerce and progress. Hell, end quote. He says, like, if I had to choose, maybe go back to the pioneer age would be better. But I think he even has other places he'd rather rather go. Um, other ways he kind of gets to this this folkway question in this letter is he talks more about the Italians. He also talks about pro-German sympathy during the First World War, which is something, of course, Lovecraft had a very complex relationship with uh, in his own writings during the period. Something Howard would have been too young to be engaged in. So anyways, overall, a good letter. There's some more here I just skipped over, but uh, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the weird fiction relationship building and the, the networking and stuff because it's not that interesting to me. If it is to you, just read the fucking letters yourself, right? Um, but um, anyways, October, 3rd, October, October 1931, Robert E. Howard to Lovecraft. Good letter, I think. Cause it, really because of the intimate reflection on folkways. I think that's something that's really special about this one. So anyways, uh, Lovecraft writes a response to this letter on October 30th, where he expresses his deep interest in the Mrs. Crawford stuff, and then responds a little bit to the diversity of German tribes and different folkways and how he kind of cut that line between different folkways. Um, Oh, one thing they, they do bring up a lot here that I guess this is another kind of new introduction is they, they get into a conversation about, about um, their friend Whitehead, um, Henry S. Whitehead. Um, remember him? Um, he was, uh, I think he died around this time, right? He died in 1932. So he's, um, he wouldn't die till the still around, but he's a friend of Lovecraft's, right? And he's from the East Indies. So he would talk. Uh, but he, he, you know, Lovecraft was able to pass on some details about like Danes in the East Indies or the West Indies, I mean, sorry, the West Indies and, and kind of their folkway in there, which, you know, kind of can be dissected <clears throat> a little bit, too. Um, there's a part of they have a conversation about, you know, whether Danes are basically racially miscegenated, too, because of uh, their long presence in the in the West Indies. Which, if it's, I think Lovecraft rejects that because if it's true for the Danes, it's going to be have to be true for for white America even more so, right? 
Um, so what else? Not too much here. He goes on a little bit more about his love of Rome. Uh, you know, a big. He always is repeating himself with this. Uh, maybe slightly new takes on it, but it comes down to the same thing: is that he he feels a kind of an emotional affinity towards ancient Rome. Blah 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 blah. Um. Yeah, they agree. <laughs> they agree that the one reason they don't like Mexicans is their distaste for learning English. Um, but Lovecraft's ancestors never learned Algonquin or Iroquoian either. But anyways, not much here. And that, that's why I'm saying, I think in this section of the letters, a lot of it is, is just bouncing a ping pong ball back and forth on different issues. I don't really see any, you know, any kind of new ideas emerging. It's just kind of playing with the same ones. Uh, for instance, uh, Howard's response in December of 1931, you know, is just, you know, you're skeptical of economics. I'm skeptical of economics too. Uh, you know, you like my talking about Wallace. Well, you know, yeah, I think Bigfoot Wallace was a really interesting guy um, uh, at the time. And he talks about, and there's other interesting frontiersmen we could talk about, like, like, Buffalo Bill or whatever. So just again, a lot of this kind of back and forth going on here. Uh, here, quote, your instinctive placement with Rome of antiquity is, as I've remarked before, most interesting. I found your narration regarding this fascinating beyond measure. Some sense of connection with the past age seems so unerring, so strong and so instinctive that I sometimes wonder if there's a bit of truth to the theory of reincarnation. End quote. So he's just trying to get back to the racial memory idea, but kind of coming at it from a different angle. It's like, well, if it's not racial memory, maybe it's uh, maybe it's reincarnation or whatever. There's got to be something to why people just feel an affinity in certain areas. You know, it's probably just they read, they read a lot of that stuff, right? Um, you know, and Howard's writing stuff set in Mesopotamia or kind of in a, in a proto-Mesopotamian world. Um, so he likes it. So... Um, you know, Howard here also talks about sports. That's another kind of ongoing theme here um, about what's the best sports and what sports are most manly and what's, you know, the best representative of a mature culture or whatever. And, and Howard likes uh, wrestling. I, actually, Lovecraft doesn't seem to not like boxing and wrestling. It's not something he would personally do the way Howard does, but it's, um, I think for him, the individual sports also are more attractive. They, they both seem to have an antipathy towards, like, the team sports. And they both seem not to think too much of, like, the fan culture surrounding sports. But as for the physical activity itself, they both see the value in it. Um, but he says, but Howard here says a game for it to be interesting to me is going to have a lot of violence and action and, and punching and things like that. It's got to be like an Indiana Jones movie, right? Lots of punching. Isn't that the problem with the new Indiana Jones movies? Not enough punching? I think, you know, you may have your own complaints about whatever, but whatever aspect of it. But when it comes down to it, you miss the punching, right? Sorry for the aside. All right, then we get Lovecraft's response, also December. So a lot of letters in this section, but none of them are very particularly long or... or or super, super, uh, like not get, not not super important in the sense of giving us more information. Um, although I do think there's some good stuff in here. Um, yeah, like, like here, for instance, Lovecraft goes on a little bit about 
history of place and ports and he gets, kind of goes back to one of his best letters in the series which is when we went on about Atlantic history um, and New England history and he kind of reintroduces that here um, but again he's like oh you want me to say more about high and low German and the different German folkways well here I got three pages on German linguistics for you he even draws him a little picture of the different um, strands of Germanic uh, languages or whatever which I think more or less holds up um, if you take a geography class today, you learn about the diff you know the high and low German threads, right? And the different regions, low German kind of becoming American and Dutch, or I mean becoming English and Dutch and going to America, but also Old Oldenburg and Hanover, High German going to uh, uh, like Southern German areas. Um, a lot of awesome stuff here actually showing like he actually was fairly well informed i guess on these germanic languages some pretty awesome stuff um listen to this from 1600 onward we may ignore all german dialect variations except when dealing with peasant speech so there's a class dimension here as for race stock the low german division of the teutonic people probably represent the original strain about as well as any southern or eastern germans have have suffered Vasted mixture with uh, brachycephalic Slavs, while the previously mentioned Northern Scandinavian have undoubtedly picked up some Lap Fin blood. The West Indian Negro strain in Denmark must, of course, be very slight and confined largely to the minority of females who have connections with the Virgin Islands. It impressed Whitehead because he came across many concrete cases. End quote. But notice how, on the issue of of black people, he has to kind of he says that's a line we can't really cross without greater evidence. Uh, you know, so he's kind of denying whether the Danes have been sort of uh, corrupted through their ownership of the West Indies. Did I say the Dutch before? I think maybe he's talking about the Danes. Maybe both. Um, of course, both had uh, had possessions in the in the West Indies. So we're just repeating on economics um, on. His Roman place, his instinctive Roman placement, as he puts it. So, blah, blah, blah. Uh, again, a lot of this ping-ponging back and forth of different ideas. Which, of course, is what letters do. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm, I'm looking for new ideas, things I haven't already talked about. All right, I do want to highlight, though, the next significant letter we have here, which is um, January uh, 1932. Um it's by Howard um, because he starts to talk about like Pacific politics and, and, and kind of things that will we understand as the Pacific War. Right. And, you know, people saw this coming. Japan being a rising power, conflicts in East Asia brewing. Right. In 31, of course, Japan bombed Shanghai. Right. And of course, the U.S. was kind of a pro-China power at the time. And the U.S. also had the, was a barrier to Japanese expansion in the Pacific because the U.S. had made the Pacific after the Spanish-American War a significant part of his own empire, right? Seizing the Philippines, having Guam and other islands. And obviously any rising Japan would eventually come to conflict with the, with the United States, right? I'm not saying that was inevitable, but it seemed likely, right, given the, the, the politics of rising powers. Uh, and more people writing about this, right? Because we went for that monopolar world after the fall of the Soviet Union. And now we have rising powers. 
right? China most significantly, but we got like India, we got uh, the EU kind of reemerging as a dominant economy. If you kind of take it collectively, you got even the, the different bricks. You got rising powers emerging. Russia's kind of crafting its own space. But rising powers tend to conflict with established powers, right? And so people, political scientists and people have been thinking about this stuff. So, you know, what Howard and Lovecraft do here is not, uh, you know, it's not only at this period that people thought this way. People still kind of worry about this. And, um, you know, he thinks, well, Japan has this essential interest in China and Manchuria, and they're not going to give that up. So there's probably going to be a war and we might as well fight it. That's sort of what Howard says here. Um, you know, Japan's not really... Um, or are you saying the U.S. isn't really prepared for war and the U.S. should be? And, and no, what better way to get prepared for a war than to fight a war, essentially? Um, and he kind of thinks it kind of is a, war, is a fight against decadence, right? Um, there is a kind of fascist undertone, I think, in, in this conversation they have when it comes to war. Because they both seem to not see war as a fault of civilization, but rather something that can sort of progress civilization or something and he and of course howard even likes war when it's like brutal he's just like you know bombing flying over city spraying poison gas or whatever isn't really fighting a war which of course i wonder what he would have said about world war ii what either of these people would have said about what world war ii actually became if they would have rethought some of these ideas a little bit Ugh. so they're going to go back and forth on that pacific stuff a little bit more on immigration more on rome more on German immigration and German folkways. More on sports. Boxing. He really loves boxing. Right? A football game can never retract me as does a really good prize fight. But perhaps my instincts are more primitive than most. A well-trained fighter can take an astounding amount of punishment. And what seems brutal to a casual onlooker really is not. The most distinguished part of pugilism is the crowd. The most disgusting part of pugilism is the crowds. End quote. Someday, by the way, I'm going to get to, uh, uh, um, what's that guy's name? Liebling, the journalist who, of course, covered World War II, but he also wrote this book called The Sweet Science, and he has a very different point of view about the crowds in boxing. He thinks the crowds are a central part of that sport and what makes it so important or so interesting. All right. Um, so that's the Howard letter. Lovecraft response to this in Janu on January 16, 1932. Again, kind of going back and forth. You want to know more about high and low German? Here's a little bit more. Uh, but he kind of adds to it the Pennsylvanian, uh, Germanic backcountry people who he, he sort of has an antipathy towards. Um, as well as Pennsylvanian Dutch and Germans, you know. Of course, these get confused sometimes, right? Uh, in, in American folklore and, and culture um but one interesting thing about the peasantry and the lower class of germans according to lovecraft as we might expect is that they hold on traditions a lot more and they have a they kind of carry on these different witch cult movements um so he's kind of building off the murray stuff again which he's already introduced to to howard i don't know if howard ever read it but uh lovecraft certainly seems to be to believe this to be true Quote, the peasants of Germany are noted for superstition and conservatism and were dangerously involved in the witch cult movement of the 15th century. 
so that a sort of medieval KKK called the Holy Velm had to be organized to check the spread of diabolism amongst them, end quote. Uh, I mention this only because he's putting the KKK kind of on the right side of history here, because if, if the vicious cultist folkways had to be suppressed, which I think from his fiction is hard to deny, unless we totally read Lovecraft against the grain, which I guess we can do, but... He always wants to suppress these traditions in his fiction, right? Uh, his narrators do, his point of view characters really want to do this. So if the holy, whatever was it, the holy film, them did that in the, in the Middle Ages, and he's comparing the KKK, the KKK is kind of the good guys, right? Am I reading that right? Um, unless he's being totally objective, too, and it might be. But anyways, no, no one would make this comparison today, I think, if, unless they were on the side of the witches, right? If everyone were to talk about this now, they, they, would, they would suggest, most likely, unless you're talking to a white supremacist, suggest it's on the side of the witches. Maybe, maybe I'm spending too much time in these letters. That's totally possible, too. Um, uh, or, oh, his views on the Pacific conflict, because it is a response to something that's kind of new here. Um, He says, I suppose that sooner or later some clash with Japan over Pacific rivalries is bound to occur, and yet I doubt whether the present Manchurian affair will participate in any such thing. America would have a hard time getting any amount of public support for a war wage over a remote issue of interest only to a few investors, and any attempt to apply coercion might start a long, smoldering social rebellion. Just now, the whole Western world is so fragrantly unprepared for fighting that I fear Japan can get away with almost anything. End quote. So he's got the view that kind of does is more historically true, I guess, at the time of, of that he, Japan's just going to be appeased. Um, but he doesn't deny that war may eventually come. He just doesn't think Americans are going to much care. Um, as for Lovecraft's view of sports, because it's something that Howard keeps coming back to a lot, um, um, he kind of tries to duck out of the conversation. He says a little bit, talks a little bit about Greek and Roman sports and, and how that's kind of cool. It's like physical... Um, and he likes the competitive spirit in a way, but he kind of tries to duck over it saying like, you know, it's like this idea of free time and spare time and leisure time. It's not really something that's in his own life, I guess. You know, when I, when I am not working, I'm thinking. So he kind of says, I'm always working. I don't have time for, for sports. He says it not quite that bluntly, but that's sort of what he's trying to get at like, if you have all this time for sports, why aren't you writing even more stories, Mr. Howard? All right. Next. I guess we're coming close to the end here. A few more letters. Uh, March 2, 1932. Uh, Howard's response to that letter. Um, again, a lot of back and forth, back to bandits, back to frontier wars, back to the conflict with Japan, uh, both where he's saying he doesn't, he doesn't think this disarmament movement, which was a real thing in the, in the 20s and early 30s, is, he doesn't think it's going to come to much, was the Locarno Treaty stuff and the, the peace conferences and all that, he thought it was all kind of silly, the U.S. doesn't really have any friends, so it's going to have to be a belligerent force, um, but one, when he comes back to the issue of Rome, um, he adds something kind of interesting here, and, and it's about like how we conceive of the Middle Ages, right? So one vision, and I think this might be one that, that Lovecraft's a little bit more comfortable with, is that somehow the Middle Ages are a degraded form of Rome. Like, 
I mean, and there's an argument for this, right? That you still have, like, the church, right? You still have Latin culture and Latin philosophy, right? And so it wasn't until the Renaissance that you started getting Greek works back. So the philosophy they had was translated from, from was in Latin, right? Whatever Latin existed from the Latin translation movements and things. Uh, maybe a little bit from the Middle East, but not much, right? Um, eventually that would come too. More so from, from the Arabic things than the Greeks, actually, at the time. But, you know, think of the church as a great example of, like, that survived from Rome. Like, the institutions of the church, you know, you had an international, Europe-wide network. And you had kind of Latin culture and the languages and things like that. So there's kind of a carry-on, right? So you had the barbarian invasions, so-called barbarian invasions. And... They kind of, they, they degrade Rome. Rome falls, certainly, and its culture, its unity, its political organization, all that falls, but it, it's something is, is carried on, right? That's one way to look at it. Um, and then Howard says, well, what if that's the wrong way of looking at the Middle Ages? Instead, this is really important, I think, to understanding Howard's point of view in all this, is if the barbarian invasions were creators of their own culture, and they weren't just, a, they weren't just like blank slates that it that took on what was there, they had their own culture, right? And I think most historians now, and if you take a world history course, it'd probably be something similar to this, is that, you know, you have this hybridity, right? That the Germanic tribes brought in politics of personal loyalty, right? They brought in maybe, you know, certain aesthetic things, right? They brought in maybe certain religious traditions. And then, of course, the Roman inheritance is something. The, the Christian inheritance is another thing. So you have these different... Um, things right and they're all mixed together right it's not one or the other but for these guys it's kind of one or the other so this is what he writes he says i sometimes wonder if the chaos of the middle ages was not the result of the barbarian tribes seeking to adapt themselves to an alien civilization instead of building up one of their own i wonder if had rome been completely destroyed by the goths franks vandals all traces of the roman culture wiped out if after a long time the germanic nations would have emerged from barbarism by their own efforts and with the culture more suited to their particular nature end quote um, and he says, maybe this is what happened in Britain. Um, so interesting idea there that I think, uh, you know, take it or leave it, I guess. <clears throat> so what else? Economy and immigration is something he talks about here. Oriental nationalism. Yeah, he's got a whole section here on Gandhi, right? And, and different Chinese nationalism and things like that, too. So these guys are really, really informed of the, of the world system. Um, but the interesting thing about the view of Asian nationalisms, right? So if you try to understand, like, the white peril stuff, or the, not, not the white peril, the yellow peril stuff, which is so popular at this time in history, right? The Fu Manchu stuff, but um, whatever. Throughout the end of the 19th, early 20th century, it really emerges around the same time that Asian nationalism emerged, whether it was Indian independence movement or Chinese nationalism against the Qing Empire and later on against foreign domination. When Asians weren't creating their like alternative nationalisms, maybe the Japanese were first, right, to do that in, in the Meiji period. There wasn't the need for like this cultural response of the Yellow Peril, right? But once you have this, this like, hey, like if these people get their independence, if they get off from under our boot, and there's a lot of them, and they're going to be powerful, holy fuck, right? Um, which I think people still hold to, right? That's this fear of the rise of China, right? I, I'm in Taiwan, so I, I've 
now I'm back. There's five good reasons maybe to fear the rise of China. But Americans don't really have as much of a good reason to fear, fear the rise of China. Um, at least not like before, you know, without jumping through some hoops first to get to a, a good reason. Anyway, that's good stuff. Um, do we have a missing letter here? Yeah, we have a non-existent letter from March 32 by, by Lovecraft, but we have Howard's response to this in April of 32. Now, I guess Lovecraft must have brought up something about skies because it's part of tying to this folkway conversation they're, they're having. I think it's, it's like maybe how environments shape our different folkways and our relationship to our culture. It's kind of a blood and soil kind of argument. And he kind of talks about this. He, Howard says, I was especially interested in your remarks concerning the effect of northern skies on our ancestral barbarian ancestors. I've mentioned you to you the predominance of cold gray overcast skies in many of my dreams. I hate cloudy weather and no one appreciates the clear bright skies of the south more than I. And yet the sight of cold northern skies piled high with gray winter clouds stirs indescribable feelings in the very pit of my soul. End quote. It's really weird. It, you know, it's hard not to take away from this if you're a mystical spiritualist kind of person that maybe he was a descendant of some kind of Germanic barbarian or something. All right. All right. Is this when they get into the Massey case? I think, I think uh, Lovecraft must have started it. Um, or maybe not. He says, you know, maybe he does start it. Maybe it is Howard here who starts it. He says, just now my interest in the Far East is centered on that trial in Honolulu, which makes me ashamed of my own race. So, of course, this is the trial that was like, it was like the OJ trial of the time, right? Everyone was following it. It was big in the news. Um, its verdict had big consequences. And especially it was informed by, by racial politics, right? So I'll just jump to the Wikipedia here to help you out if you don't know about this. The Massey trial um, was a 1932 criminal trial that took place in Honolulu. Socialite Grace Fortunusk, Fortunusk along with several accomplices, were, was charged with the murder and the death of a well-known prizefighter Joseph Kahawani. Fortescue was the mother of Talia Massey, who had brought charges that Kahlo Wai was one of the group of the men who raped her. All right, so that's the background of the, the trial. So the question was, like, was this kind of basically mob justice um, justified, right, um, by, the, by the fact that he, you know, originally raped this other girl? And so when the jury jury uh, convicted her, it was a manslaughter. It wasn't a murder. So they did give her a lower uh, crime. Then this became created this national outrage. It's like, but it was all informed by racial politics, right? In this kind of frontier protectorate, this, this colony of the United States. It wasn't yet a state even, right? So they start talking about that. And then both are really disgusted with this case and both kind of come at it as like this. It was a... Assault on whiteness, very racist kind of perspective on, on this trial. Um, saying like white people have a right to defend themselves from the foreign hordes or whatever, even though in this case it was natives, right? It was a native person, but it was, you know, with these two blokes, I don't know if they're, they're making these distinctions. He says, I consider it a blot on the country's flag and honor that the case was ever brought to court. At least that. At least she should have been honorably acquitted without delay. Why, good God, what's the Caucasian race coming to? Is a white individual not allowed to protect or avenge the members of his or her own family? End quote. 
Um, I mean, even for for Howard, it might even be more just the revenge, the justification for revenge, more than it was a, a racial thing. But it was probably a bit of both. Um, they, he also has some really interesting stuff on like Alexander the Great here, and and his dreams. I mean, Alexander's dreams of of, of kind of an Oriental conquest and creating. Like not only standing toe to toe with the Asian empires, but but kind of incorporating them into his own Western empire. He's got these very East-West views, which I don't think apply to the time to the you know the time of Alexander's empire. They've been imposed on this history, I suppose. I guess obviously East-West are modern constructs, but. Yeah, he just comes out with it. History fair drips with blood. It's a marvel to see how the race has survived all the wars, pestilence, famines, and massacres, which have been so generously bestowed on it since the beginning of time. Um, and then this feeds him into another conversation about violence, um, you know, both regional and, and just in general. And finally here, this letter, we see Howard getting kind of philosophical, talking about, like, uh, fate. By fate here, he doesn't mean predestination so much as is randomness versus choice and free will like a lot of people see determinism and free will as the two you know sides right if you're a fatalist you you believe in determinism if you're not you believe in free will but i always thought and i'm not saying i'm original in this but that isn't there also a kind of fate that's that's just that it's things are so random and we don't have control over things, right? It's not that it's predetermined necessarily. I mean, maybe in a total mechanistic universe, you could say, yeah, it was all determined in the Big Bang, hard determinism, whatever. But but setting that aside, you know, at least that's how I perceive it, right? That I, I think I have free will. But I also realize that most of what happens to me is not my choice, right? I bump into someone on the street, you know, and I ask her out and we go on a date. We fall in love, right? What was the chances I was going to bump into that person, right? It was probably, you know, a million to one chance, right? What's the chance I'm even here? You know, how many times did I almost get hit by a car or whatever? So it's not that the real enemy of free will isn't necessarily determinism. It's just chance, right? And, and Howard kind of babbles about this a little bit uh, in a more interesting way than I just did. All right. What do you have time for? One more? Maybe you have to do two more. Maybe a couple more. Uh, let us take a while to go through. Even when I'm trying to be quick. Uh, so we got uh, Lovecraft's response on May 7th, 1932. To the last letter. Let me see what's good here. Um, Tartars and Saracens. Um, more on the Greek culture and Alexandria and all that kind of stuff. More on sunsets. Oh, he gets under the Massey case in Reconstruction here. This is this is this is wild. Um, listen to this. The East is certainly a complex and worrisome problem. My reaction towards the Hawaii case is much the same as yours, and it seems to me a vast mistake that a grand jury indictment was ever returned against the defendants. When a region is unwilling or unable to enforce a code of law adequate to the protection of a dominant race, there is a certain there's certainly no alternative for that race but to maintain its integrity through the primitive and extra legal processes of the frontier. Uh, so that's the first part of it, but he can't help himself by talking about reconstruction. He goes on. Thus, during the 
disgraceful period of so-called reconstruction after the Civil War, the Southern states could not possibly have withstood the malignant barbarism of ignorant, adventurous, and politically exploited blacks, except for the salutary purgation afforded by the original KKK. So he's taking the the kind of the lost cause, white supremacist interpretation of Reconstruction, which was the dominant view of Reconstruction by historians at the time, right? But not the only one um, out there. Du Bois wrote his Black Reconstruction in America around this time, 1935. But we have, I just did a series on William Moles Brown, and he has a, a different view of Reconstruction. A lot of what was in, um, you have uh, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about it in Souls of Black Folk, which was written nearly 25 years before this letter was written. So not that Lovecraft had to read everything. You know, it's just that this wasn't the only interpretation of Reconstruction out there, but it was the, the dumbest. It just happened to be the dominant view. Mm, anything good here? Ah, a little bit of architecture. That's good. All right. Okay, two more, I promise. Just two more letters here. Howard's uh, reply to this letter was on the 24th of May. Um, yeah, he, so Lovecraft was going on about the Arab conquests, and, and Howard dug that. A lot here on, on, uh, on weird fiction, actually. But what's his response on the Massey affair? Just because this is such a weird cul-de-sac these two men get into. He writes, that Hawaii business is a rotten reek in the nostrils of decent men. I agree with you in believing that the island should be put under military or naval rule and in hoping that the dirty yellow bellies that committed the crime will be put away properly. I know what would happen to them in Texas. I don't know whether an Oriental smells any different than an N-word when he's roasting, but I am willing to bet the aroma of scorching tide would have the same chastening effect on his surviving tribesmen. Yet I consider the actual perpetrators of the crime more decent and honorable than the attorney who prosecuted the Avengers and the jury, supposedly composed largely of white men, which convicted them. I guess outside pressure was brought to bear on the jurymen. I understand Hawaii is controlled by oriental interests. Instead of a boycott, a noose should have been used wholesale. As for the attorney, for any white man who's low enough to crucify an outraged child of his own race before a mongrel swarm, a roll down the hill and a barrel full of safety razor blades is too good for him. It's by ardent hope that he will come to his end at the hands of some of his yellow-bellied pets and that his demise will be neither swift nor painless. All right, Howard. You can uh, calm down, please. It's a little wild. A little much little much but on this issue the two feed off each other on, on other issues they they foil their foils for each other and that's where it's more interesting when they're feeding off each other it's a bit gross um more on fate and destiny and stuff like that here too so anyways let, let's wrap this up just one last letter um to howard from lovecraft uh, dated june 8th now what's here is is mostly about Lovecraft's Southern Trip, which we've talked about that in previous episodes when we looked at his uh, selected letters. I think that was in when we looked at volume four of the selected letters. And of course, it was significant because he meets E. Hoffman Price, who he writes uh, a couple stories with, or at least, you know, the Silver Key sequel was written by him. If this Southern Trip didn't happen, it had Howard not introduced him to E. Hoffman Price and they had that famous 
all night conversation on the phone, all that kind of stuff is is documented here. Um, so definitely, we see the inf that southern trip having a big influence on him, and he really was interested in southern architecture and these different folkways, as, as we've already seen. And then we get back into the ping pong back and forth about, um, you know, again the Massey affair. Really a yellow peril thing. Um, interpretation on both sides here. Um, and though it's weird how they connect it because it was a uh, this native who was, you know, killed, but the the subject of this vigilante. But somehow they interpret it as like it's because it toys in the pawn of like Japan. It's it's a really weird position they end up coming to. But it's all tied to the elf, yellow yellow um, yellow peril stuff. So I guess that's it. Um, yeah, let's stop here. Yeah, the, we got a little postcard just about the price call on um, here dated June 14th. But that's the last thing I want to look at today. So anyways, uh, in the next episode, I'll keep going, pushing my way through these letters uh, from July to September 32. Um, it'll probably be just the way it turned out and how I dog-eared the pages. It's, it's going to be a little bit less, but... Um, we'll see where it goes. We'll see where this conversation takes us. But my feelings on this is, although there are some fascinating aspects, like the Massey case, even though it's kind of gross, uh, some of the stuff on Japan and the Yellow Peril stuff is, is good. I think that's adding to our understanding of these two men, um, more so than some of the other parts, which is really just repetitive, repeating their perspectives. But anyways, we'll see where the conversation goes um, coming going forward. But let me know what you think about any of this stuff. Um, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, as you probably heard me just say, uh, my next series on the 100 Pages podcast is going to be probably Sinclair Lewis uh, Main Street. If I feel like it, I might record some episodes of that while also in quarantine. But my focus is on getting this Lovecraft stuff out of the way. Um, so... When I finished up the Baroque cycle, I didn't quite know where I was going to go, but I decided Sinclair Lewis was always fun. I, I enjoyed the Aeros I enjoyed Aerosmith, so let's read some of his earlier works. So that's what I'll probably be looking at um, next. But after the Lovecraft stuff's done, I'm just going to focus on the 100 Pages podcast uh, and just do twice a week as normal and not pick up another big project, at least not in the, at least not in the short term. I'm going to try to focus on writing the Lovecraft book, if I can get it. It's pretty gal.